If you have a Bible, go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. As you're turning there, I want you to do some thinking for a few minutes, and we usually are kind of jumping right in. Today, I want to give you about a minute or two to think on your own, and then we're going to, I'm going to have you just shout out some of these things. Here's the question that I want you to think about as we get started today. What is a piece of art that deeply moves you? Could be a song, a poem, a movie, a film. If you're really refined, it's a film. It's not a movie, right? A film, a story, something that when you have experienced it, it has impacted your life. It's moved you in some way. So be thinking about that because the reality is we don't talk about that stuff very often. One writer I read this week said that typically arts, music, and drama are the pretty border around the edges of reality rather than something that is certainly real itself. So I want you to be thinking about that question. What's a piece of art that moves you? We as humans typically go to the movies to escape from reality. Right? We don't think of that as real. We read books as a distraction, or we watch Netflix to get us ready to fall asleep. Music helps us zone out. We don't approach those, those works of art to discover more reality. We approach them as entertainment, decorative add-ons for our lives. But I want you to understand this as we start today. This has not always been the case. See, for centuries before our point in history, like for people long before us and, and really leading up to kind of the modern age of the Enlightenment, when, when suddenly human culture was fixated on science and rationale was perceived as the pinnacle of learning and truth, really for any non-modernist minds, poetry, art, they were real and true. They were sources of beauty, yes, but, they, but, but beauty was conceived of as something that was true, right? So the Greek philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, they, they talked about what they called the transcendentals, the true, the beautiful, and the good. And the, if it was true, if it was beautiful, it was good, it was all interconnected. So if something was beautiful, then it was good, and it was also true. If it was good, then it must be true, and it must be beautiful. And I'm getting a little philosophical and heady, I know, but we know these senses of truth coming from, from beautiful sources of art. So let me hear your answers. What, what's a piece of art that moves you? Just shout some things out. And remember, you have masks on, so don't mumble. No, like specific examples. Try to pay attention, okay? <laughs> that's my sister. If you're new, that's my sister. I'm not that mean to everybody. <laughs> what is it? Okay. Awesome. Just seeing the nature, the creation. What else? Pieces of art. What? To kill a mockingbird. Yes, beautiful. What else? Star Wars. Star Wars. Yes. 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 <laughs> Others. Lord of the Rings. What else? What? Oh, yeah. Well done. What else? A couple others. Come on, shout them out. Some of you are like, I'm afraid to say it. I'm going to get judged. Just shout it out. What? Yep. <laughs> Come on, one or two more. You guys don't watch movies, apparently, right? Legends of the Fog. Good. One. Yeah, the music. Yes, one more. Come on. It's going to be a long sermon if you don't give me one more. <laughs> okay, awesome. So my guess is, even if you were too hesitant to share what it was, you have something that you hold on to that you go, 
this thing just just hits me, right? It tells a story that impacts or has impacted your life. And And in that way, here's what I know, it's true at a deeper level for you. It's something that speaks to the core of your being in a way that maybe, and I think you'll get this, in a way that science and math textbooks don't. Science and math textbooks are true, but they may not have that same impact. So the story of a film, the images of a poem, the tune of a song digs into us, gets inside of us in ways that we can't imagine. So that art may speak more truth to you than a science text. So what's my point? We've been in a series that we've called Finding Joy. And in this series, we're working through this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church. And it was the middle of a pivotal moment for both him and for the church. He writes to this church from a prison cell, from a place of chains. He shares his great affection and he thanks them. He says, I thank you for the gift that you sent, the financial gift, but I also thank you for your partnership. Everybody remember the word koinonia, this mission friendship. And he says, I have this affection for you that I want to pour out. And so he speaks of of his love for this church and also the middle of a moment where he says, I'm surrendered to whatever comes. I'm in chains. And if I die, it's Christ. I get to see Christ. I get to be with Jesus. If I live, though, it's, it's for you. I will pour myself out for you. And he has this unbelievable perspective that gives him joy in the middle of his suffering. And so last week we talked about the, the fact that Paul was now moving into this letter, into the, the lives of the Philippians saying, I want you to start to live your relationships differently. And we, we said that if the gospel has truly marked our lives, if we've been impacted by the love and the grace of Jesus, then our lives should be marked by the gospel. And so I ask you at the end of last week to think about those people you know who don't know Jesus, who've walked away from Jesus, and begin to be praying for them, to begin to in- invite them to know him. And that's where we've been. Now today, I want to show you a poem that Paul includes in the middle of this letter. But I want you to see this, and I open this today with this reflection on something that's moved your life, because I want you to see this poem as more than just the pretty border of a theological letter. It's not that. In fact, I don't want you to even let yourself think of the poem as decoration to this letter. Instead, I want you to see this poem for what it is. It's something placed directly in the epicenter of this book of Philippians for, to, to stand as the heart of Paul's teaching to the church. The poem, I would say in Philippians, is the truth. It's the thing he wants them to get. It's the theological heart of this letter. And the explanation that goes around it in the other two and a half chapters is just expanding what the poem says. And I hope it moves you. So let's look at this passage. Remember where we left off last week. Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. This is what it says, what, what Paul says to the church. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And we talked about how easy that is to do, right? None of us struggle with valuing others above ourselves, especially in an election year. Verse 4. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So Paul's just turned the corner from his own suffering to begin to challenge the Philippians to serve others out of their affection for Jesus. He's calling this people who, by the way, lived in an incredibly diverse community, and unity in a diverse community is always hard, right? Unity with people that aren't like you is always difficult. Have you noticed? Are you with me? 
And so he's approaching this in a church where unity would have been difficult because diversity happened in their wealth. Uh, they had wealthy, they had poor, they had ethnically diverse, they had politically divided. He's calling this people to the heart of the gospel that is loving and serving others. And then he sets up this poem that I'm going to read to you in verse 5. Look at what he says in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We could probably say amen and let you go right there. We're not going to do that because I got lots to say. But in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is the setup. Notice the colon at the end of the sentence. Paul says, I want you to relate to each other with the same mindset Jesus had. Now pay attention because I'm going to tell you the mindset Jesus had. I want to read this poem to you, verse 6 through 11, in one reading. And we're going to break it down. Here's what he says. This is the poem. If you were reading this in Greek, you would see this for the poetry that it is. Here's what it says. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, before we dig into the particulars of this poem, I want you to give, get, get a couple of the big picture things going on here. We, we have our common songs, just a little bit more interaction. What's your favorite song that we, we worship with here? Any, any thoughts or favorite hymn from the past? Just shout some of them out. This is participation time again. You, you with me? Some of you are going to name a movie here. How Great Thou Art. What else? Old Rugged Cross. Good. What else? Amazing Grace. Good. What else? Yeah, notice that we're saying all these hymns that we grew up with. Love that. Anything the band does. You get a gold star today. (laughs) How about younger generations, worship songs, things that you guys cling into? Just shout them out. You say, good. Yeah, we have these songs that speak into their lives. And so as we read this poem, I want you to understand, most theologians believe this would have been part of the the, the regular liturgy of the Philippian church, of the church at this time, that the churches of this day, this was a poem, a song that they might have come back to again and again and again. It was the old rugged cross of the Philippian church. Now, second, I want you to understand that in this poem, there are several stories being told, right? That, that there are things being spoken of here that Paul wants them to grab onto. There's lots of different themes. So first of all, this is a story about Jesus, This poem is telling the story of Jesus in a way that they could understand, that they could remember. But it was also a story that Paul used to echo the the writings of the prophet Isaiah from chapters 40 to 55. I would encourage you this week, go home, study Isaiah 40 through 55, because those are a section of the prophet's book known as the servant songs. And in these servant songs, Isaiah 40 through 55, you can see that God references Israel, his chosen nation, as his servant, and yet they fail. And so in the middle of those 16 chapters in Isaiah, there begins to be another story of a servant of God, a son of God, who would come to rescue 
the failed nation of Israel, the servants. And, and in this poem, Paul is echoing. You can see it as you study those. We don't have time to go into all that. It's also a story about human beings and their vocation. Paul says, I want you to have this mindset that Christ had. As he died, as he suffered, I want you to take that on. And finally, it's a story, believe it or not, about Caesar. You see, this church at this time lived as a part of the Roman Empire, and Caesar, every Caesar, claimed to be Lord. And they claimed to be Lord through power and victory and violence. And Jesus had proven himself to be Lord through humility and sacrifice. And in becoming the true Lord, Jesus made Caesar the parody. So these are the layers going on in this poem. Now, let's dig into the poem itself. We read poetry today, and we think it should rhyme, right? Some of you are like, I don't read poetry. Move on to next week. I get it. All right, but hang with me. For the Jewish people, it wasn't about rhyme. It wasn't about that. Poetry for the Hebrews was about drawing focus. It was about uh, offering parallel lines and helping readers and listeners see and feel connections. So when we look at the breakdown of this Philippian poem, we see that structure. We see connections here. So look back at verse 6. Here's what it says. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, I want to take you on, a, on what I call the descent of Jesus here. I want to show you this. Go ahead and bring up that next slide. This is how Jesus emptied himself, right? The very place that this starts, as we read this first part of the poem, his surrender was of his position. Jesus emptied himself in humble surrender. Now, don't miss the theology that this teaches us here. Jesus was the son of God, the second being of God, and he renounced that position. He said, for the sake of humanity, I will give up myself. Now, theologically, what this means, and you got to get this if you're going to follow Jesus. This is part of orthodox belief. Jesus always held pre-existence. Now, I know that's like, what? Jesus has always been. He has always been God. He was fully God. Now listen, he was fully God, but verse 6 tells us he didn't grasp onto that. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. We could say that Jesus' emptying of himself started with moving from being a grasper to a giver. What are you? Who are you? What does that look like, right? Then it says in verse 7, rather, this is where it moves to, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So if it started with humble surrender, Jesus' emptying of himself, that's what the Greek means there, he made himself nothing, was now humble incarnation, Right? We're told he made himself nothing. Many translations tell us that he emptied himself. The word there in the Greek is kinou, which is this loaded word. A lot of writers will call this the kenosis poem, and it echoes that word. It's an emptying, a humbling. The King James Version says Jesus made himself of no reputation. And in his authority as God, pre-existing for all time, fully God, he became human. And he became fully human. He was God, but he emptied himself. He humbly surrendered his position and then humbly incarnated himself. Now, for centuries, there's been debate over what this means. Churches for a long time, theologians early on in the life of church had to deal with this theological issue. This was the hot button of their day. Was Jesus fully God and fully human? Some would say, well, no, he was, he, he was a, a created being by God. And the early church said, no, that's heresy. 
And they would hold up the orthodox belief to say, no, he is fully God and fully human. When he emptied himself, it did not make him not God. Are you with me? He was still God. He was fully God, fully human. There's been all kinds of interpretations. I believe this question begs for us to ask, who do we say Jesus is? Because today we still have these false interpretations, don't we? Some of us want to live as if Jesus loves us, cares about us, has incarnated with us, but we don't want to allow him to be the Lord and the God of our lives that he truly is. We don't want to submit ourselves to him. Some of us love the idea of God being God, Jesus being God, but we're not sure he really comes close to us. But he's both of those things, his humble surrender, his humble incarnation. And then look at verse 8. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. And I love the hyphen here. I love the next part. Even death on a cross. So he didn't just die. That would have been humble enough for the God of the universe to say, yeah, I'll die of old age. That'll, that'll Whatever. No, he died on the cross. Now, the next part, this, this brings us to the, the lowest part of Jesus' emptying, right? The descent of humility, the emptying Jesus chose. Don't miss this. His crucifixion, the death on the cross, was the epitome of a life lived in humility. See, Jesus' whole life was about humility, right? He, he emptied himself of being God. He incarnated as a human. He was born in a stable he spent 30 years of his life in obscurity. Can you imagine? Listen, just think about this. Can you imagine being famous? I can't. And then going, I'll give it all up. I'm good. Everything I had, I'm good. Just take it. I'll go live in some farm country. Doesn't matter, wherever. Jesus was God. And he spent 30 years in obscurity. He loved the unlovable. He chose to allow himself to be nailed to a cross. I want you to understand what the cross meant, because the cross was not just a way of dying. It was the worst way of dying. It was a cursed way of dying. Hebrews 13 tells us that the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. So in the Jewish world, the priest would take the sacrifices in and offer the sacrifices to atone for the sin. But the bodies, the writer of Hebrews says, are burned outside the camp. So here's what this means. In the temple world, you took the good parts of the animal into the temple to be sacrificed for sin. But the waste, the ugly stuff, the unclean stuff was burned outside the camp. And then the writer of Hebrews makes this parallel and says, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Jesus chose to be the cursed, the wasted, the unclean, cast aside. Those who died on a cross were considered under a curse. They were ridiculed. This is like choosing to be sentenced to death row and letting your record show you're a murderer when you've never picked up a gun. It's like registering as a sex offender for the rest of your life when you've never committed a crime. This is what Jesus took on himself. This is the humiliating descent that Jesus made. And it's the theology that Paul wanted the Philippians to have. It's the way he wants his church to do relationships with the same emptying that Jesus took on. He said, I want you to humbly surrender your status. I want you to humbly incarnate yourself to those in need. And I want you to humbly choose to sacrifice your life for the sake of others. But watch the second part of this poem. This is where, by the way, if you're bored, stay with me. This is where it starts to get cool. This is where Hebrew poetry connects 
This is the parallel because everything that's been say, said, go ahead to that next slide. Everything that's been said in those first three descents connects to the next part of this poem. Look at verse nine. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. All right, so if Jesus chose to be killed on the cross, I want you to see the nature of this poetry. It's parallelism. It's about connections. Because he chose to die, he was exalted. Because he gave up his life, he was exalted to the highest place. So if it was about humble crucifixion, now it's about glorious exaltation. And and, and the writer, Paul here, says he was given the name. Now, what does that mean? He was given the name that's above every name. This, This is... This has little to do with the sermon. It's just really cool nerdy stuff that I want you to get today. Okay, can I, can I tangent for like three minutes? You don't have a choice. I have the mic. Go ahead to the next slide. In the scriptures, in the Old Testament, when Moses is called by God to go set Israel free, he says to God in Exodus chapter 3, well, who should I tell them sent me? You remember this part of Exodus, right? Who should I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I will be what I will be. Well, that clears it right up. And the word there in Hebrew is this, eh, yeah, right? It, it, it is the word, and he later goes on and says, tell them I am has sent you. And the word there is the Hebrew phrase Yahweh. Everybody say Yahweh. Now, the letters here are four letters, yod he vah By the way, it's like breathing, yod he vah God is the essence of our existence. Right? That there is in Yahweh this holiness. It is not, God is not just one of the gods among all the nations. By the way, this is what set the Jewish people, the Christian people apart. One God. He was holy. Moses says, who are you? And God says, I am Yahweh. Right? Now, in the Old Testament, if you were to study this, you would find that the word for Yahweh is used 6,500 times in the Old Testament. It's really important. Are you with me? It's super important. But for the Jewish people, when they would call out the name of God, they believed, now understand this, they believed that they were not holy enough to say the specific name of God. So they would not say Yahweh. They would actually substitute it and say Adonai, you've heard this word, which means my Lord. That's the Hebrew for Lord, Adonai. And so anytime you look in your Old Testament and you see the word Lord, you will see in the scriptures that it is lower, uh, smaller, all capitalized, L-O-R-D, all capitalized Lord. That means, anytime you see that all capital Lord, it is Yahweh. It is Adonai. And it was a signal to the Jewish people that you don't say Yahweh, but this is Yahweh. Are you with me? Everybody with me? You okay? All right. So the scribes wanted to prevent accidental speaking, and they would actually transliterate this. Let me show you the next part. They would take the vows of Adonai and the consonants of Yahweh, and they created this word, Yahowah, Jehovah. Are you with me? And now we have the name of God. Why does this matter? Other than I really think it's cool, okay? That's the big part, but... At this time, in the first century world, who was lord of the Roman Empire? I told you earlier. Come on. Caesar was lord. To hear someone else as lord would be shocking. And Jesus empties himself, and now Paul says he's been given the name that is above every name. Caesar doesn't compare to Yahweh. When you look at Jesus, you've seen Yahweh. Is this not the story of the gospel? He goes on in verse 10. 
after glorious exaltation, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So if his exaltation is connected to the crucifixion, then what happens here is the reversal of his incarnation. If crucifixion, choosing to allow himself to die for the sake of humanity, leads to exaltation, because he incarnated, he will now have authority. Do you know who has authority, wisdom, mentorship in your life? People who've been through what you've been through. Those are the people we trust. Because Jesus incarnated in a way that we can understand, empathize, compassionately lead us, he should have authority in our lives. Isaiah 45, verse 22 and 23, the, the, the prophet says, God says, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there's no other. By myself I've sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, God says, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. Are you living as if God has authority in your life? Friends, by the way, this is what we do in worship. Worship is practicing what we will do for eternity. I hope you recognize this. I hope you recognize that pouring ourselves out to God in worship is the rehearsal for pouring ourselves out to God in worship. Does he have authority in your life? Has he, have you submitted and surrendered yourself to him? Then verse 11, the end of this poem, it says, Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we move from humble crucifixion, even death on a cross, to being glo Jesus is gloriously exalted because he emptied himself. Then he has, when he's exalted, he has glorious authority, and finally he has glorious lordship. Every tongue, one day, friends, whether they trust his authority or not, every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confessing Jesus as Lord meant Caesar was not. Persecution and killing came to the Christians because of this, but they didn't care because they lived under the authority of Jesus. Let me sum this up for you way better than I have. C.S. Lewis can do it. He says this, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. God empties himself to fill the world. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, but he goes down, listen, to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture, C.S. Lewis says, of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying over his shoulders. He emptied himself to raise the world back up. Now, here's, here's where we could go. I could just finish the sermon and we could move on. I do that a lot. Today, I want to pause and I want to just treat this. You're going to practice what the scriptures tell us. I'm going to have the band come and we're going to pause right in the middle of the sermon and sing a song together, okay? We're going to worship together. And then I'm going to finish the sermon. So if you're thinking that we're getting close to lunch, we're not. I got plenty of time, okay? But we're going to worship God because here's what I'm afraid of sometimes is we read the scripture, but we don't obey the scripture. I'm afraid sometimes that we, we listen to the words, but the words don't pierce our heart and our soul and our bodies. See, friends, I, I want you to grab onto this. When this poetry says there's going to come a day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, we should be doing that now. 
I, I know that, that we live in a culture here where our, our Christian faith is very privatized. It's very much reserved. And so for some of you, we have to beg you every week to clap your hands. We have to invite you, give you permission to lift your hands. And friends, there's nothing magical about lifting your hands or clapping except that it's obedience to what the scripture tells us. And so there are spaces in our lives where we go, you know what? Jesus is Lord. And I'm going to submit to that authority. And I'm going to bow before that because there's a day where everyone will do that whether you're comfortable with it or not. There's a day where you will bow to the name of Jesus. So why not practice now? And so I'm going to invite you as we sing to assume a posture of worship. Some of you, I would love, most of you, I'd love if you actually knelt and said, Jesus, I, I've never done this, but this is my response to you because I think he'll meet you in the middle of that. Some of you need to lift your hands. Some of you need to just stay quiet because you haven't done that for a long time. But whatever it is, as we pause in the sermon and practice what we've heard, Let's respond to who Jesus is. So I find that when people practice the things that discomfort us in worship, we start to long for the things that discomfort us in worship. We start to go, okay, get the sermon over with. Let's do more of that. Because we're going after Jesus for ourselves rather than leaning on the pastor, the worship team, or the trained professionals to bring Jesus to us. And friends, that's what this passage is about. And so as we wind this sermon down, I want to show you these last couple things. Paul says, and this is the question, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for our journey of joy that we're, we're talking about? Paul frames this poem again in verse 5 by saying, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So what does this have to do with joy? I want to say this to you, and I want you to see, go ahead and bring that image up, Joan, of this emptying of Jesus. The, the humiliation of Jesus in his path to the cross is the same pattern for our own journey towards joy. The humiliation that Jesus takes on in his surrender, his incarnation, and his crucifixion is the same pattern we are called to as followers of Jesus if we want to find true joy. Let me show you how this works very quickly. When you humbly surrender your own position... As Jesus surrendered his, you are renouncing any false identities. What you will find then is a joy in identity. You will find joy in the identity of Christ rather than the identity that your Instagram feed gives you. Rather than the identity that you fi can't find when you look in the mirror. When you renounce any false identities, you will find joy in the identity of being a child of God. When you begin to choose to humbly incarnate yourself with the love of Christ, you know what that means? That means you pour yourself out for the sake of others. You go, you know what? Somebody else's need is never an annoyance to me. I will serve no matter what. I will incarnate in the way that Jesus would. I will come alongside people in their brokenness, even if it's inconvenient, even if it costs me money, even if it costs me time, even if it costs me resources, even if it's a bother to my family, I will live beside people because that's what Jesus did for me, what you will find is joy in mission. Your life will take on new purpose, new meaning. People come to me, I'm not feeling God. Well, why are you, are you serving anyone? No, I'm not feeling God. Good, go serve someone and watch yourself feel God. When we take on this life of humble crucifixion, we will find joy in sacrifice and suffering. We will begin to say, yes, I count it, just like Paul said, I count it all joy 
to be persecuted. I count it all joy. If I live, that's, that's Christ. If I die, it's gain. It doesn't matter. I'm going after sacrificing myself. And then watch. Because we don't get the exaltation, the authority, and the lordship. That's still Jesus's. We don't get that part. But when we lean into his exaltation, then we have joy in worship, joy in hope. We start to lean in and go, God, you are exalted. And so now I have joy when I get to bring my, my, my things to you, my life to you, my heart to you. It's like the kid, when, when we get home from work, parents who can't wait to spill everything about their day. They're just glad to be in our presence. When we exalt Jesus, that's what happens. When we give him authority, we have joy and hope. We have joy to offer back to him because if he's, listen, if Jesus is authoritative, the pandemic, he's not surprised by it. Amen? Like if he's got authority over this world, he's not stressed out over who wins or loses the election. Can you picture Yahweh, Jehovah, the name who can't be spoken going, oh my gosh, I didn't see that guy winning. What am I going to do? These people, the polls were wrong. My news media station told me the wrong. No, he's authoritative so the hope can be placed in him and not the circumstances of our world. And then finally, when we see his glorious lordship, we will go, we will find joy in our unity because we stand under the lordship of Christ. It doesn't matter if you see the world the way that I do or I see the world the way that you do. We are unified under the lordship of Christ. Nothing else matters. We are called to be the church. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. So look at the end of this Hebrews 13 passage. This is where we'll close today. And this is why this matters. Remember what it says in Hebrews 13, 11, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. He became a curse so we could be holy. He went outside where the dirty, wasted, unclean, unworthy things died so we could be invited into his holiness. And then look at what verse 13 says. Because this is the call to the church today. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the same disgrace he bore. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Like, think about that. Do you really want to be great in the kingdom of God? I do. I want God to say, well done. Here's how you do it. You take on the same descent that Jesus took on. You take on the same disgrace that Jesus took. You go to him where the unclean, the unworthy, the broken down, the, the cast aside, where all those people, all those things, all those dwell. You go to the place where he found you, by the way. You go to the broken places and you say, Jesus, how can you use me for the people that don't know you? Jesus followers, if you don't care about the people who, who, who around you who don't know Jesus, if you aren't praying for them, if you're not thinking about them, if you're not asking God, how can I love them? How can I care for him? You have not fully experienced the gospel. I don't know how to say it any more clearly than that. You're not getting the whole story. If church is about you getting to heaven someday when you die, great. That's a true story. That is the story. But the broader story is it's about bringing heaven into the places of hell and redeeming them, restoring them, renewing them, reimagining them, and saying, let's do something about this messed up world. Let's carry joy in our descent. Let's go to the places where Jesus went and bear the disgrace that he bore. And by the way, you want to know how to be joyful? That's how. You go to the places that are broken and you watch God do amazing, amazing 
things. So as we close, here's my question. Are you willing to descend? Are you willing to bear the disgrace that Jesus bore? Are you willing to go to him in the cursed places? If so, listen, you got three weeks in a year where more people are anxious, fearful, depressed, and stressed out than they've been in decades. You got three weeks leading up to Christmas to tell them the greatest story of hope that the world has ever known. Will you do it? And I don't mean just invite them to church so I can tell them the story. That's great. Do that. But invite them to Jesus. Don't invite them to Pastor Justin. Invite them to the hope of the gospel. You be the gospel. Stop waiting for Jesus to show up. Go be Jesus to the world. And watch what happens. And then the, big, the, the bigger question, I think, or maybe just as important, have you actually submitted to the Lordship of Christ? If you're here and you've been playing church for a long time, never said yes to Jesus, never said, I'm all in, I'm going after you. Today is the day for that. He's called you to something more, this journey of joy. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to close with one more song. And if you're saying yes today to Jesus, I, without hesitation, I want you just to make eye contact with me. I want you just to look and say, yes, I'm in. This is it. This is the day that I'm leaning in. I'm going to do what Jesus says. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to go after him with my life. I'm tired of chasing the things, the status, the greatness, all the false stuff. And I want to just put myself on the altar and say, I've got to take that descent. Listen, I'm not going to lie to you. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. You're going to, have, you're going to be called to renounce your false identities. You're going to be called to humble surrender. You're going to be called to incarnate, to live the gospel to the people around you. It is going to mess your life up in the greatest, most beautiful way possible. Jesus will disorient you. And you're going to be called to sacrifice. And if that's you today, just look at me. Just make eye contact. Because I don't. there's nothing magic. I just want to pray for you. I just want you to see that someone sees you and that God sees you. And he's saying, this is it. Yeah. All over the place, there's, there's people saying, yeah, this is it. This is what life is, and I'm saying yes to Jesus today. So let's pray together. Jesus, thank you.